We're going to look this morning at Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7, and Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. We'll look at some other passages as well in Job, but this will be our sermon text reading. Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And now chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. This is God's word. And it's the final concluding chapters of Job, which is chapters 38 to 42 is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. And we're going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday in chapters 38 through 42. And I, I hope uh, it doesn't elicit the response that Chuck Swindoll got from his church in Southern California back in the 1980s. When he announced it was his last Sunday in Job, uh, the church gave a standing ovation. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't the ovation of encore. It was the ovation of, yes, we have had enough. I think he took a long time in Job, whereas I've only taken seven weeks. And hopefully, although I recognize there were some people who expressed some fear when I announced at the beginning of a pandemic, we're going to be in Job some people express the fear of, you know, why do you want to depress us further? Uh, but hopefully you've seen in now our sixth of seven weeks in this that while Job can be uh, an anguished study, the, the, the point of studying Job is not to wallow around in, in suffering and pain. The point in studying Job is to consider, it gives us the occasion to consider for ourselves what we should consider when we think about Job, which is, whether my faith is such or could yet develop into the kind of faith that continues to trust God when every human benefit for doing so seems stripped away. When the season of pain and suffering something lasts longer than you wanted it to last and it may never lift. Some losses uh, are irreversible. Now, similar to last week, I wanna operate this sermon by way of drawing a contrast and explore the difference and that's the sermon so the same thing that we did last week we'll do again this week with a different contrast last week in last Sunday's message I drew a contrast based upon who Job's friends were and what they did we sort of zoomed in on them not specifically their words but just the the flavor of of what they uh, we're telling Job and where they're coming from, and we'll kind of go back to them a little bit next week as well. But the 
contrast that I tried to draw last week for you is the difference between uh, making a right judgment and needing to judge. And so we took that contrast and we looked at, at both component parts of that and we, we talked about how to make a right judgment and we talked about how not, we, we, how not to need, uh, to put it that way, how not to need to judge, which was the fault of the friends. They just had to judge. They had to get it out. They couldn't help themselves. And we'll talk next reason. There are reasons for that. Uh, which I'll get into next week. That was last Sunday. Today, I want to present you with another contrast and, and just explore it together, and that'll be the sermon. The contrast this week is between the experiences of being overwhelmed and overpowered. Overwhelmed and overpowered. Both happen to Job, uh, but they're not the same experience. And so as we come now to the end of Job, these famous chapters where God responds out of the whirlwind uh, to Job for all these chapters, it's Job and his friends talking about God and now God answers. As we get into this, this block of five chapters, we already know what Job did not. Uh, we don't know, he didn't know what was in the background. We know what's in the background, but what he did know and what we know is that he's been overpowered. He's been overpowered by Satan. But many read this and think, well, poor Job. I mean, God bullied him too. Job gets overpowered left and right. But that's, that's, that's actually not what's going on. There's a difference. So let's take the difference between Job being overwhelmed by God being overpowered by Satan, and let's explore this difference. So first, Job being overpowered. Uh, I'm sorry, overwhelmed. Job being overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by God. Overpowered is the second point. Overwhelmed is the first one. So first, Job being overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by God. Look at how uh, to see this, I want to start with pointing out something in the text in a couple of places. Look at chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God answered Job. Does this word choice mean anything? Actually, it does. And you get the same uh, word in chapter 40, verse 6. I only read through the first five verses in chapter 40, but in verse 6 of chapter 40, it also says the Lord answers Job. What's the significance of using the word answer? Because there is a significance. If we went back to chapters 1 and 2, the dialogue between God and Satan in chapters 1 and 2, we find there that the word used is the word for speak to. The Lord spoke to Satan, and in Hebrew idiom, the word for speaking to is one-way communication from a superior to an inferior. That's the word that gets used of the dialogue between God and Satan. God speaks to Satan. But in these concluding chapters, we get the Lord answers Job. Chapter 38, verse 1, also chapter uh, 40, verse 6. Look again, chapter 38, verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. 
and you make it known to me. And some people say, you know, God tells him to dress for action, then he undresses him. It's really not like that. It's not a dressing down as we would uh, think about it, like, like even in a military context where you, where uh, my, my uh, oldest daughter's boyfriend is currently in basic training, Lackland Air Force Base uh, in Texas. And th- thankfully, he's doing really well. He's a smart, uh, superior kid, and, and he's doing a great uh, job with this. But at some point, he's going to see a dressing down. <laughs> Maybe not happen to him, but it'll happen to somebody. Uh, the military is great at that. Uh, but it, it's not happening to Job. Um, a lot of people read Job that way, though. Chapters 38 to 42, that when God finally speaks, it, it feels like God is badgering Job. You know, we feel for him. It's like, it's like God's bullying him. It can sound like God has heard enough now and basically is going to put Job in his place. I'm God and you're not. You worship me because I say so. That's why. But even when we rightly grant God his superiority, we won't argue that. God is superior. Even when we rightly grant God his absolute sovereignty over all things, it it still doesn't sit well to take God speaking to Job here in the last chapters as heavy on the shut-up sauce. (laughs) Uh, We know God esteemed Job. And we know that at the very end, or we will know next week, uh, God vindicates Job to his friends. Job, God will say to Job's friends, you, you have not spoken what's right about me. And have Job pray for them. If this had been phrased, say all that to say this. You have the Lord answers Job, chapter 38, verse 1, chapter 40, verse 6. If this had been phrased as out of the whirlwind, God spoke to Job. Same terms in chapters 1 and 2. That conveys that that, uh, one-way communication downward from a superior to an inferior. And we have that in chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job. But we also have the word answer twice. And that's a more even dialogue. It's interesting. It's overwhelming in that it's God with a man the one who is superior to the one who is inferior, but in answering him, there's dialogue, there's an evenness. It's almost like God lifting Job up, and Job is going to get a, a full-on view. I mean, later, it's almost like he, he see, what he sees is he sees God's voice. That's how powerful God's voice is. Job is said to see it. We'll get to that next week. But in using the word answer twice, that's relational. Many read this as God shows up to tell Job, shut up. I've heard enough from you. Puts him in his place. Essentially denounces him. You don't know what you're talking about, Job, and your friends even less so, and I'll deal with them in a moment. But in being answered, God engages the relationship Though he did not give Job the answer that he sought, the explanation Job wanted, and did not handle Job particularly gently, as we count gentleness. But there's there's no doubt God loved him. Even though God's manner with Job is gruff, yes, it is. 
And even though God's choice of the whirlwind out, to, uh, out of which to answer Job is personally painful for Job, what is it that took his kids from him? A wind. Chapter 1, verse 19, a wind blows through the house where they all are and knocks it down and they're killed. And now God appears in a, a wind. It'd be like losing a family member to a tornado and God shows up in a tornado to talk to you. But in being answered, it evidences a kind of relational intimacy is at work here. And, and that itself is overwhelming to us. It should be that God takes thought for us, that God cares for us, that, that God will give us uh, 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 an answer. That is, he, he will speak to us. And, and in the New Testament, it, it's... He has spoken in these last days by his son. He sent to us Jesus. Through, through his cries, Jesus cries, we hear Job's cries. Why would it be important for this to drill down in us? The overwhelmingness uh, of God, even though we may be going through pain. Why is it uh, important for it to drill down in us that there is a kind of relational intimacy at work still between God and Job, even though all this stuff happened in Job's life. Well, take, take prayer as a reason. Do you pray to a God who you know cares for you, even if every tangible expression of that goes missing for a season or longer? Job is a man who prayed often. We saw it in the very beginning of the story, prayed for his kids often, often found at worship. And he kept praying all through the devastating stuff that happened to him. Now that's, that's remarkable, really. It's even more instructive than we tend to think uh, it is because for a lot of us, modern people, particularly living in this cultural context of in the land of plenty, for a lot of us, when we get angry at God, think we have cause to be angry at God, we're disappointed with life and we blame God for this, prayer is the first thing to go. Particularly prayer in the robust, well-rounded, uh, that it's, it's also petition, it's also praise, it's, it's also giving thanks in all circumstances. The New Testament tells us this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, that we learn how to pray thanksgiving in all circumstances. There's a qualitative difference between faith that yet still goes to God in pain, goes to God with the pain and not just the pain, but also praise ongoing, also thanksgiving, also petition for others, this kind of praying. There's a difference, a qualitative difference between faith that yet goes to God even in the pain and faith that encounters personal pain and says, well, that's it for God and me. I mean, I didn't sign on for this. I'm suffering and this faith thing isn't working out so well. I, I, I don't see a, a reason for this suffering or pain. And so there cannot be a reason for it if I don't see a reason for it. Not even God could have a reason for this. So I'm done. That happens. Think about it this way. 
what if God, in overwhelming Job this way as he does, what if God had given Job the explanation he sought? And what if the explanation had gone along the lines of, you know, Job, I know this has been excruciating for you. But you need to know that millions and millions of people for thousands of years after you are going to hear your story and are going to draw strength and courage and, and honor you as one who followed me come what may. What if God had said that to Job? Job's not going to get the benefit of that doesn't get the benefit of that. Don't know that it would have made uh, a great difference. It would at least put some kind of context on it. You're, you, you have the, the dubious distinction of being chosen as an object lesson for all of time. I don't, I don't know that that would have uh, caused him to not grieve what was uh, upon him and what he went through. The, the grief is only human and natural. But you, you won't without that Job without having that the benefit of an explanation which is the thing he wants go back look through the book all all he wants is an explanation tell me why this happened and then he wants vindication show my friends that I'm not at wrong here Lord that this isn't something I I deserve because his friends are moralistic and they're fundamentalistic and, and they're kind of pseudo-intellectual uh, types that, that need to, to work through the, the high math of this and, and, and come out with solid uh, answers to the equations. He wants the explanation, but he never gets it. And even without the explanation, Job never stopped seeking the Lord, never stopped praying. And that itself indicated, like nothing else, his ongoing belief in God, his ongoing trust in a God that he knew at bottom cared for him. Look, if you consider God, I think we always have to say this in a prosperous American context. If you consider God an accessory to your happiness, basically a, a personal assistant with power and connections, if you consider God an, access, an accessory to your happiness, that he's there to keep us safe and warm and well, then you will not pray when things get tough and cold and sad. Prayer will be the first thing to go. You won't pray through the hard thing with prayers that yet praise him, that yet thank him, even in the circumstances you don't want, that you feel chained to, confined in, trapped under, and you think, what's the good in praying? God isn't doing anything for me. I keep asking over and over again, change the situation, do something here, make, make something, give me some hope, and it doesn't change. And you think, what's the point? Why, why pray to a God who's not answering me according to how I think I need to be answered. So you essentially fire him. I mean, that's what you do with an assistant who's not assisting you, right? You fire the person. Job struggled and he argued and he felt confusion and he felt anger. 
And yet God was always his sovereign, never his assistant. And this is part of the backdrop for why God answers Job with creation. I mean, this is really kind of fascinating. Because the entire answer spread from chapters 38 through chapter 41. It's, uh, it's all about creation. Large-scale, macro-creation, things seen and unseen. God comes in with this overwhelming wash of creation. We just got a little flavor of it. I'll give you a little more uh, in just a bit. But it's fascinating how he answers Job with all this creation. Why? I'm in a uh, Wednesday night study we're we're uh, zooming this study and we're reading right now a little book by um, a Louisville pastor named uh, Greg Gilbert called what is the gospel I actually wrote the book 10 years ago it's a great handy uh, small book what is the gospel and in our discussion this uh, past Wednesday night we looked at how the gospel message involves creation Greg Gilbert makes this connection in his book that, that creation uh, has a, a role in the gospel, how we proclaim it, how we understand its good news, how we understand its, its, uh, its bad news, what's wrong with, with uh, humanity, uh, what's wrong with creation, why creation is a chaotic and, and violent place so often. Uh, one of his sentences is this, I thought, I thought this was Fantastic. Another person in the study uh, brought it uh, to the group's attention as well. There is something about the grandeur of creation that calls out to the human heart, you are not all there is. Now, you've probably had that experience as I have. You've gone to fantastic places in the world. You've stood at the uh, top of a mountain. You've uh, stood at the edge of a canyon. You've uh, taken in a waterfall. Uh, and and you've, you've just been overwhelmed and amazed by by these places around the globe where uh, it's just huge it's immense it's hard to take it all in it's glorious it's it's fantastic or even even when you go microscopic and and you you take a, a microscope and, and go to the to the back of a little spider that you'll you'll squash if you see it in your bathroom floor and you see intricacy on the back of that spider. You see hairs on the legs of that spider and all kinds of feelers. And yeah, you know, it's a spider. And so we go, eh, yeah, it's kind of gross. But when you really look at it, it's kind of awesome. You think, man, what kind of God, you know, puts all of this together? It's overwhelming. At the microscopic scale, all the way out to the macroscopic uh, scale we're we're watching uh, we'll probably watch an episode tonight uh, on Netflix uh, our planet uh, hosted by uh, David Attenborough who else could host uh, a nature special and it's just it's a fascination every time to see what the cameras uh, can pick up and find it's just it's incredible well there's something about the grandeur of creation that calls out to the human heart, Greg Gilbert's words. You are not all there is. There is an aspect to why Job is taken to creation. There is an aspect of God saying to him, you're not all there is. 
if we just start to piece this together. Because, think about it, when you're suffering, your world shrinks down. It does. When you go through something you don't want, did not seek, do not like, when you're suffering something, the suffering, that something has a way of reducing your world down to the, conf to the confines, uh, the cell, if you will, of, of, of where you don't want to be and yet find yourself. And so answering Job as God does, you can count about 61 questions, 61 questions that have the flavor of, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Where, wh tell me about creation, how you understand it. Tell me about how uh, you contain and control all of these elements. Surely you, you are aware of how it all functions. God is saying, look, if, if, if I'm here, if you've never stopped believing that I'm here, then it is very likely something more than you know is going on. And your role is to trust me. That's part of this for Job. It's part of it for us when we're going through suffering times. Something is always going on that is more than just our pain. It's, it's hard to see it in the moment. And in fact, I'll tell you this, if you wait until you're suffering to try to develop resources for suffering, you will, you will suffer badly. You develop resources for suffering when you're not suffering. You implement them. You go to them when you're suffering. And if those resources aren't there and you're suffering, it probably means you, you never developed them beforehand. A nearness to Jesus, that's actually going to be our June series. In the month of June, I'll take you through some ideas on how do we get near to Jesus. I talk about it a lot. Let me give you some concrete ways in the month of June that we, we get close to, to Jesus. It's the series is going to be called Living Into the Name rather than Living Up to the Name. You'll never live up to the name of Jesus on you, but you can live into the name. And so we'll talk about that. But as we take things in pieces here, there is a piece of this. Why does God answer Job with all this creation? There's a piece of it that is, I'm, I'm God and I'm still in control. God is answering Job that Job is not all there is, yes. But there's much more to this also. See, because Job already knows that anyway. I mean, Job knows that he's not all there is and, and he's not denied God's existence at no point. He's kept seeking God. When it all fell apart, Job worshiped. Remember that? Chapter 1, verse 20? Uh, that beautiful uh, rendition with the choir and, and band members uh, and what we watched right before I got up here to, to read and to preach. Uh, Though he slay me, that song based on Job 13, 15. Job says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, but I will argue my ways to him to his face but the face of God is this voice out of the whirlwind that's what Job gets at the end he gets the face of God but it is it's blowback and yet it, it's not overpowering him it's overwhelming him there's a difference but in this the reason God takes Job to creation is because creation is really foundational to every 
all questions about who God is and what he's doing. Job has asked a lot of questions all through this book. He's had all these confusing, upsetting experiences. And here he is, someone who's existing in God's world. He knows it. And we get here even the personal name of God, by the way. I don't want to forget that. All the way through the book, you've got God Elohim, which is the somewhat, I mean, there's no generic name for God, but it's, it's, kind, of the, it's kind of the everyday uh, name for God and can even be uh, the Elohim can be the gods, the false gods. So God generically, God, uh, the, the word God without any necessary reference, they're talking about Yahweh. But here in chapter 38, Chapter 40, when it says chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job, that's Yahweh. It's the person, there's been a shift in the text between Elohim, God, uh, in the uh, general reference to deity, to now, chapter 38, verse 1, Yahweh. Chapter 40, verse 1, and the Lord said to Job. Chapter 40, verse 3, then, the, then Job answered the Lord and said, Yahweh. The personal God. He's not just answering, having a dialogue. He, his name is Yahweh, is speaking. You get to the New Testament and we find out his name is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God made the universe through Jesus. It all comes together. But Job isn't being put in his place here, as we say. God's not saying, shut up and let me be God. You would do a terrible job running. It's, it's not that, like that. Going to creation, as God does, means God is reintroducing himself to Job as the one who cares for all creation, all his creatures, seen and unseen, and this includes Job, though he's not going to give Job exactly what Job thinks he needs. God overwhelms Job. But it's that rather than overpowering him. The difference is overpowering is what the bully does. The biblical account of creation is unique. Um, our biblical account of creation is unique among other ancient accounts of creation. In that other ancient accounts of creation... The world is in turmoil because it comes out of turmoil. In other ancient accounts of creation, you get um, two gods in a battle. And the world is just sort of this accidental uh, result uh, of their battle. Or you have some malevolent supernatural force behind all that is. And so in ancient cosmology, how you understand uh, the world and metaphysics and all that... You had this idea that, well, if the world is wrong, if the world is chaotic, it's just echoing its founding. That's how it was set on its axis, as an accident. It was made out of conflict, and so it's going to be a place of conflict. So go the ancient creation narratives. And they give birth to spiritism and animism, if that's your worldview, that these malevolent forces are in charge, that the world is an accident, and you need to find whatever powers and spirits there still are around and try to appease them. But even with scientism, put it in the modern context, 
What is the Big Bang? The Big Bang is order coming from chaos. And so even in, in scientific naturalism or naturalistic scientism, if you prefer, we credit chaos with creation. And then we tell ourselves that thanks to our evolutionary development, we bring order to the world. That's standard American scientism 101, and it's immensely arrogant. God overwhelms Job with creation, not out of chaos. A creation that's ordered and structured and bears his, his purpose and his detail and his meaning. And so it's not chaos, uh, creation out of chaos. It's not, it's not a creation in chaos, but it's creation answerable to him whom Job trusts unfailingly. And so in replying with creation to all Job's agonized cries for explanation, God says to Job, chaos is not all there is, and you know it. You've been essentially saying up to now, all there is is chaos. You know that's not true. There's a lot you don't know, Job, and, and I'm not going to tell you what you don't know. I'm not going to give you explanations, but you know I remain over my world. You know this. And you know there remains an order and a structure and a purpose to the world. You see it. And Job says, chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, I do see it. Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? How do you answer creation? You, you don't answer creation except to be overwhelmed by it. God reintroduces himself to Job as the one who cares for all his creatures, including Job. But now Job has suffered. There's still a problem. The problem is I don't feel cared for. He's been saying this throughout arguing with his friends, and God's always been an earshot of this. I don't feel cared for. Job was laid low. He wanted explanation. He wanted vindication. Explanation for what happened to him. Why did it happen? Vindication to the friends. Tell them that I'm not guilty of, of spectacular sin as they think I am. Hidden sin that they think is there. And we'll get into the kind of vindication he gets at the end next time. But now consider with me how Job was overpowered. We didn't read this, but look over at chapter 41, verse 9. Second point now, how Job was overpowered. Chapter 41, verse 9. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. Who's the him? Something called Leviathan. At the end of chapter 40, you get behemoth. Hebrew word for some kind of creature. And then you get Leviathan in chapter 41, another kind of creature. What is this about? He's talking about Leviathan. The hymn in 41.9 that I just read is Leviathan. What, what is Leviathan? Let's take a step back. God in chapter 38, beginning his answer to Jacob or to uh, Job, he takes him to all of creation. The stars. You know how many stars there are? There's like a hundred billion galaxies that we know about with trillions of stars in each one. Psalm 147 says uh, God knows every star by name. He can contain all of that. He sees all galaxies, including the ones that we know are there but we can't see. 
He sees what's unseen by us. Now follow me here. God, in chapter 38, starts out with a galactic view of the world, which is both seen and unseen. And then through chapter 39, he moves down to the sea. A lot in the sea isn't seen, especially by ancients. Most of it wasn't seen. Now we can see it with our submarine technology and all. But he goes to the sea, the creature's there. He goes to the land, the creature's there. This is what God is doing in chapter 39. And then chapters 40 and 41, he turns to Behemoth and Leviathan. Who are they? There's all kinds of traditional understandings of this, that it's an elephant, it's a hippopotamus, it's a dinosaur, it's a crocodile. You know, I'm not sure what I'm talking about. Let's just read it. Chapter 40, verse 15. Chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knitted together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade and the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. He's confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes? Or pierce his nose with a snare. And then you get Leviathan. That's behemoth. And then Leviathan, chapter 41. Let's just look at that. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him from your servant forever? Will you, uh, to take him as your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? On and on he goes until he gets down to chapter 41, verse 34. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. What is that? See, when you read these descriptions, in some ways they fit creatures we know about, but in other ways they don't. I mean, if you want to say Leviathan is a crocodile, well... Does the crocodile, is the crocodile king over all the sons of pride? Probably not. So when you can't make a description altogether fit with anything in the animal kingdom that we know about, what's more likely is that you're dealing with something that's actually unknown, that's actually unseen. Could God be referring to supernatural phenomenon here? Moving from the physical universe... Chapters 38 and 39, most of 40 now to things that can be physically described, but they actually are unseen realities. It's possible here. It's even likely. The Nicene Creed that we believe says we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And you've got three books in our Bible that talk about supernatural creatures, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation. We've just recently been through pieces of Revelation and saw this, how Satan himself in Revelation is presented as a dragon. Look at what Leviathan does. He overpowers, chapter 41, verse 9. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. In the NIV that reads, any hope of subduing him, Leviathan, is false. 
The mere sight of him is overpowering to a person, but not to God. If Leviathan is a, is a kind of um, bestial description of Satan himself, like we find in Revelation, Satan there is a dragon. I'm not going to go to the wall for this, but for sake of consideration. Then Job is being clued in to what has gone on in his case. Job has been laid low by a Leviathan. The Leviathan, like a Leviathan, whatever Leviathan is. And that, in truth, uh, the king over all the sons of pride, into verse 34, that's, that's Satan in truth. Satan overpowers is the point. Whatever behemoth it was, is, whatever Leviathan was, is, something seen, something unseen, something that once lived, something that no longer does, is, we don't know. We won't know. But if you take the approach that Perhaps what God has been doing is giving him the physical universe, things seen for the most part, and then launches into, and there's unseen realities too that I'll physically describe for you, much like John does in Revelation, but, but these are unseen realities. I think that's possible. It's possible. I'm not insisting on it. God is overwhelming Job with his power and control over all things, that nothing happens outside his knowledge and will while Satan has overpowered him. That's what the bully does. People who say God is bullying Job here, God addresses Job bracingly, true. Tells Job, brace himself, because the answer that, that he gives is this whirlwind tour of the splendor and wonder of creation. But though that's not the explanation Job wanted, it leads to the restoration of Job nonetheless. Because if God is in control, he will lift the one laid low. <laughs> Exhibit A, Jesus Christ himself, who was laid lower than Jesus, took the sins of the world upon his shoulders. Doesn't God prove his creative power unparalleled in raising him from the dead? Jesus, whom Satan was allowed to overpower by way of a Roman cross? Teresa of Avila was a 16th century Spanish noblewoman. The Catholic Church sainted her. A familiar story about her, often told, is that she um, went through a very deep, dark season of depression during which she had a vision where God uh, appeared to her in this vision and said, uh, this is how I treat all of my friends. And Teresa said, then it's not surprising, Lord, why you have so few. But does he have few friends? What do you do when you feel overpowered by life circumstances you don't want? You didn't seek for yourself. You, um, you, you aren't at fault over. You, it's not something you did or didn't do. It just is. You cry out to God. And the, the comfort we're meant to get is, is not that he's going to come to my aid, though I hope he does and want him to. But the comfort that we're meant to get is we're crying out to the one who laid himself low so that we can be lifted up. 
you can ask for an explanation. You're, you're not likely to get it. But I, I think if I know anything today about the little bit that I think I know anything about, I think the older you get in your faith, the further you go in your faith. Now, it's not an age thing. I don't really mean age. But I mean the further you go in your faith, the more miles you log on this road, the less you need an explanation. I mean, you'd be nice, but we always assume that if I had an explanation, I'd like it. I probably wouldn't. I mean, if some of the hard things that have gone on in my life are going on in my life, if God said, well, you know, they're for the ministry value, I say, Lord, you take your ministry value. I don't want that. But nevertheless, I recognize that there are aspects. The comfort with which we receive, we comfort others. People suffer. Uh, and it's just reality. And, and I'm, no, I'm no fatalist in, in saying that. It's just reality. You're going to have things enter your life you don't want at some point, somewhere, somehow. Your health, the health of a loved one, your kid, uh, financial downturns. You have to move to a place you don't want to live, away from a place you do. Relationship problems. Something is going to rattle you. Something's going to feel like behemoth and leviathan whatever they are has squeezed you in the middle and they're taking the life out of you whether those are literal physical creatures or supernatural figures being described for us in ways we can grasp physically the point is the tragedies and the heartaches and the painful things are going to come you can't escape them I don't care what crash rating you find on your car and how big you can build the gates around your neighborhood. Something's going to get under and around and through and over. And you can't develop the resources for suffering when that happens. You know, I, I appreciate people who show up at church when they're hurting and in pain and, and they're looking for an answer, you know, but I also want to put an arm around them and say, you needed to be developing your faith before this time came. Because it's going to be hard enough just going through the time faithfully. But there's no magic. There's no potion. There's no equation I can give you. There's no system I'm going to drop on you here and, and just follow this and everything will turn out beautifully well. Some things are just going to hurt for a while. And they're just going to be on you for a while. And there are resources. There is a God who still cares for us in those things. The cries of Job, we hear them through the cries of Jesus. Who on his cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet the God he was calling to, he knew by the intimate term father and gives us the same privilege. Still trusted, still commended his spirit to God whom he knew as Father, and so do we. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time at the end of Job. We have one more week, and we ask that you'd clarify for us what uh, may be cloudy and things that we don't yet understand when we come to those seasons of life, when we realize we've been 
as it were, invited to a higher dialogue with you, that we don't take the blowback as we see your voice in power. We don't take that as you're angry with us. The cross forever says, standing before us, that you're not. All of your anger was dispensed there. And so, Lord, help us in our weakness and our frailties to continue to reach out to you, to continue to look to you, and to want your way in truth, this time forth and forevermore. Amen.